there. My name is Sean, and this is Grit, True Stories That Matter. Grit is a weekly podcast about stories, the contemporary personal narrative kind of story, and the people that craft and tell them why, you ask? Well, we want to feature these tellers and their stories, and also to help you craft and tell better, more engaging, more relatable, and more memorable stories. True stories. Personal stories. Grit stories. Our episode today and next week are a little bit different. They're stories from an event we had in August. The event was called Suicide Noted, Personal Stories from Badass Survivors. As some of you might know, I have another podcast called Suicide Noted, where I have been speaking candidly with suicide attempt survivors since July of 2020. We're now on episode number 132. I will put a link in the show notes if you'd like to check that out. While those are longer kinds of stories, more like conversations, today's episode has two stories that are stories. Beginning, middle, end stories, contained stories, the classic personal narrative kind of story. And oh, by the way, we do have another event coming up Sunday, November 5th. It's called the Mental Health Happyish Hour. It's a virtual open mic. So if you like story, you want to listen to some stories or maybe tell one yourself, check it out. I will put a link to that in the show notes as well. Our storytellers today are Erica Bloomfield, who lives in California, and Jamie Brickhouse, who lives up in New York. And so what I'd like to do now is play you part of the introduction to that actual live virtual event from back in August. And you will also hear some conversations with the storytellers by both me as well as audience members. So let's dive in. We started Grit right after the lockdown, sort of masterminds or swap shops, groups that meet together, had a lot of events, and a lot of you have been there. We had the Mental Health Happyish Hour, which is an open mic, 99 Second Story Slam. We did something for a while called 7 by 7 which is kind of like tonight's. It was curated, but this is a more specific theme, that of suicide or suicide attempt survivors. About the same time I launched a Suicide Noted podcast where I interview or speak with suicide attempt survivors. Some of them are here. Some of them you'll be hearing their stories this evening. And I was just trying to make those worlds come closer to, and closer over time. So this is actually the first real thing that is that directly associated with those two worlds, a personal narrative story and suicide. So I am thrilled that you're a part of that. I also welcome your feedback. I don't know. My whole jam with all this is for people to feel less shitty and less alone. So if we're doing that, we're doing something right. I do have to give special thanks. And I think this is the first time I've ever had to give this kind of special thanks. Normally, I'm thanking the tellers. I'm thanking the audience. Now I actually have to thank or, or choose to thank organizations who have helped fund this event some. I've, I've gone big time, people. We've made it. So those people are NAMI NC, oh, National Alliance of Mental Illness. Some of you probably know them. Uh, the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services and the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Really appreciate your support. We appreciate your support. Our first storyteller. I have known her for the better part of two years. She's got a storytelling show out in LA where she lives called Revealed and a new podcast, relatively new podcast with a friend of hers called Telling Mental Health. Let me spotlight her. And welcome to the Suicide Noted Personal Stories by Badass Survivors stage, Ms. Erica Bloomfield. I take a fistful of tranquilizers and wash them down with a bottle of fine red wine. I find myself in an exquisite moment. I'm floating weightless on my back in the salt water. In the brilliant sunlight, I'm inundated with nothingness, a respite from my anxious condition. 
complete quietude of thought. Let it last. Please let it be more than a short plateau out of chaos. No whys or what ifs or self doubts. The conjuring of a wonderland. The blue sky is clear like the current state of my mind. The brilliant sunlight vanishes as reality jolts me back into consciousness. I've been staying with a friend since childhood, and she has a good heart. She's happily married, a public service lawyer in Los Angeles. She's taken pity on me. I'm heartbroken from a bad breakup. I'm an unemployed singer in a defunct rock band. My friend arrives home and finds me in and out of consciousness, and I'm sobbing. I want to die. Please, just let me die. While we're waiting to be seen at the UCLA emergency room, I beg my friend for the tranquilizers. She's put the bottle in her purse to show the doctor. Of course, she refuses. I jump at her and grab her purse and pull out the bottle, pop it open, and the pills fly everywhere. I'm yelling at the orderly guy that he is a fascist for not letting me smoke a cigarette. He rebukes my behavior and I get a taste of what my future may be depending on what the doctor decides. I don't think I really want to die as much as just sleep for a long enough time so that when I wake, my shattered life will be back together again. I am committed to the UCLA mental ward, my condition deemed acute, a danger to myself. I'm put on the side of the ward for the extremely ill. I spend two weeks there. And after I move to a recovery home for people with mental illness, it's my night, my turn to meet with the recovery home psychiatrist. I know exactly what I'm going to do to get out of there as soon as possible. I finally understand what the orderly on the ward meant when he said I had to start playing the sanity game, keep agreeing with everything they say, especially when they say that I have bipolar disorder. The doctor is waiting. I enter a small cozy office with an overstuffed couch for me to sit on. He sits across from me in a chair. He's young, maybe 32, and he has a warm paternal maturity about him that makes me feel like he's older. He's nurturing, relaxed, while professional. He explains, take a step away from what you believe to be true. Question, is this real? Bipolar depression is a powerful force, but with the medications and with reality checks, it is manageable. I want to believe him. Dr. K continues, it may be a lifelong challenge to remain. He pauses thoughtfully. I interject. Sane? He laughs. He's honest. I like that. He says, well, yes, but I was going to say, stay stable. What does stable even look like, I wonder? I'm like a spinning top that never stops. My life is a blur of misinterpretations, missteps, and tragically incorrect calculations. And I've destroyed my life. Mental illness means I'm entirely defective. I burst into tears. 
handing me a box of tissues. Dr. K says, I believe in you. He looks at me with what seems like true compassion and understanding. My session is over. I thank Dr. K. It's the first time since this nightmare began that I feel respite from my condition, complete quietude of thought, no whys or what ifs or self-doubts. My mind is clear. Thanks, Erica. I appreciate, I always appreciate people crafting these kinds of stories. They're hard, not just emotionally, like the craft of it is hard. And then telling it to people, some you know, some you don't know. So I'm going to invite the audience right now, everybody, including the other storytellers, uh, to share whatever they'd like in chat. And again, if you have a particular question for Erica, please message her directly. May I ask a question? Sure. As I imagine after you tell a story like that, it's a little bit like, whoa, I got a good sense of why that doctor was a little different. Perhaps this is an obvious question. It sounds like you've had your fair share of doctors in the mental health space who were not like him. Yes, that's true. I was very lucky. He, it just turned out it was really wild. He was on my treating team at UCLA. And when I first met him, he said, I don't think you remember me because I was quite out of it. And he, and like knew my case and we really connected. And then he continued to treat me pretty much for like 15 years on and off, depending on mostly steadily. And then I switched health insurance because my job, whatever. And then I saw a new psychiatrist that was the exact opposite. And it was really unfortunate. I, I find that it's harder to find someone to connect with. Much easier to find people who suck than the good ones. That goes beyond the mental health space. But yeah, for sure. I know for me, uh, and, and I'm not going to talk much about me, but uh Yeah. I have, you've, you've heard a story and some others here have heard a story I share where, you know, I was in the mental health system, the psych unit for a week or so. And it was really, really hard, but there was one particular person who made a huge difference and it wasn't a particularly exceptional. I mean, it was exceptional, but if you were just looking at it, you'd say it was rather mundane what he did, but it was very powerful after being treated a certain way for, for a couple of days. So Sean, there's some really amazing questions in the chat right now. I see what does stable even look like when meeting with Dr. K, does your perspective on that question differ now from when you initially had that conversation? I think that I've come to understand my form of stability, the things that I really have to watch out for. What was really important to me then, which is still really important to me now, is that I had a full artistic life. I've been an actress and a writer and I sang in a band and I was always very artsy. And at that time, I felt like I lost everything and I was never going to find the stability to live that artistic life that was so important to me. And so I feel like my perception of stability, it was hard for me to look at myself as not stable, but my perception of stability now is that 
I'm doing the best that I can. And some days are better than others. And when I'm feeling destabilized, I'm super grateful for my my friends because that's who's my support system and, and for thing and for things like this. Okay, so someone asked me, what, if any, advice would you give to someone else struggling with this diagnosis so that they could power through the pain? I would say some people don't want medication, but for me, it was really integral. I know that without the medications to balance my imbalance of chemicals in my brain, I wouldn't be functioning at a high level. So my advice would be if you're going to go the route of medication to try as much as possible, because it's really hard and so much trial and error, side effects. You know, I once heard someone say that psych meds can be like opening up the hood of a car and pouring oil all over, hoping it seeps into the right place. But I know people who found stability on medications. Okay, so someone asked me, do I ever regret still being alive? Ooh, that's a that's a Sean type question right there. No, I am very grateful that I'm still alive because I think about how sad the people who love me would feel, would have felt, and how profoundly grateful because that sometimes it's so dark that that doesn't even bring people back. There are times I have like extreme anxiety, like it gets so bad and that I try not to medicate with um, anything addictive, addicting, addictive. I think, I don't know if I can do this anymore. Like Mm. it's like, I just want the stress and the anxiety to stop. And it feels like, in that moment that it's going to kill me. Like, I feel Mm -hmm. like it's going to kill me, but Mm -hmm. I get out of it with like the coping skills that I practice. And I am grateful that I'm getting to do this and have wonderful friendships. And I have a beautiful niece and nephew. I'm turning my birthday is coming up and it's hard because it's an older one. <laughs> like a fun red wine. Yeah, 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 yeah. So have you ever dealt with a lengthy depressive episode? If so, how long and what ha- helps you get out of it? Yeah, I was super depressed for years. And the true thing that helped me get out of it was I started volunteering at an organization for kids in underserved neighborhoods to help with their homework and reading and, t- and writing. What does fame look like? Great line and the uh, and the honesty of the doctor. Glad that you met that one. Yes, same looks like I'm able to get out of bed and that I'm not pushing a shopping cart. Yes, <laughs> sorry, it's not funny. I did that. Uh, what would you say was the biggest challenge in relating this story to people like us who you don't know? Well. When I first started telling my mental health story like seven years ago, it was terrifying. And I thought, I don't think I should reveal this. Like, it's not a good thing to tell people that you're crazy. No one's going to trust you. People are going to stay away from you. People are going to be suspicious of you. Mm. And then I just decided that I had to tell it because for my own well-being, I knew it would be cathartic. I felt like it could maybe help people. And, um, And so I just... I just did it. I just decided there was going to be more positive than negatives. And even if there were negatives, this, even if it was a small light of hope that I felt by telling them that it was worth it. Good. 
Thank you for answering those questions. And those were great questions. I do encourage everybody. It seems like you're already on board to ask them, uh, you know, again, the tell the storytellers aren't required to answer them, but it seems like most of them, that's something they might want to talk about. Thanks again, Erica. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. And our next storyteller, another uh, badass survivor, another bold storyteller. Uh, he's got quite the resume, but what I am most, most drawn to is his uh, stories and heels. If you want to check out TikTok and stories and heels, it's some really good shit. Uh, he lives in New York. He's a good guy that I haven't met yet, but one day hopefully will soon. And I'm going to spotlight him. His name is Jamie Brickhouse. And Jamie, the stage is yours, sir. In the last months of my drinking in 2006, I was obsessed with drinking. I was also obsessed with suicide. Now, at that point, I was not just an everyday drinker. I was an every waking hour drinker. Suicide was the last thought when I passed out at night and the first when I came to in the morning. But I didn't have the guts to do it. I, I kept hoping for divine defenestration, some magical force to pull me out of bed and toss me out my bedroom window to the street 10 floors below. Or maybe I would make it look like an accident. You know, the old uh, step in front of the bus routine. But then I would think about my partner, Michael, and my parents. And I thought, I can't do that to them. To myself, yes, but not to them. And I had a friend, Paul, who had killed himself a few years before. But before that happened, he had gone MIA for a while. He lived in Los Angeles. I live in New York. So we didn't see each other that much. Uh, And then he resurfaced and he was in New York and we went out to lunch and over several Bloody Marys, he told me that he had tried to kill himself. And I said, why, Paul, you have so much going for you. You're a great writer and you're smart and you're witty and so many people love you. He said, I just felt like I was done, done. And when he said that last done, it was like a, a dead pigeon fell on the table and I still couldn't understand it. And then later that year, he tried again and he succeeded. And I was so mad. And I thought, oh, how could anyone get to that point? So I always joke that I was a functioning alcoholic. And as long as the word functioning was in front of alcoholic, I was fine. I was a life of the party kind of drinker. But at this point in 2006, I was no longer drinking at any parties. I had been thrown out of, I don't know how many bars, at least two that I remember. I had been fired from one job and I was close to being fired from the new job that I was in. I don't think functioning was a part of the equation anymore. On this particular morning in 2006, I overslept and I emailed my boss a lame excuse. And when I came to, there was an email from her and she just wrote again, question mark, question mark, question mark. And I thought, I can't do this anymore. And I started walking around my apartment in circles. And then I looked in the mirror and I saw a ghost of myself. Or was it the picture of Dorian Gray? I was bloated, splotchy skin, bloodshot eyes. And I said nose to nose with my reflection in the mirror. I'm done. Done. I understood how Paul felt. I got it. I didn't blame him anymore. And then I grabbed a bottle of sleeping pills. 
I didn't think about my partner, Michael. I didn't think about my parents. I didn't think, period. I was operating on vodka and a mountain of self-loathing. And I poured a vodka on the rocks and I went into my bedroom and I closed the blinds to block out the bright morning sun. And there in the dark of day, I emptied those pills into my mouth. I washed them down with that glass of vodka and I climbed into bed and I pulled the covers around me as the sounds of traffic and life, 10 floors below, drifted away. Well, when I came to, I was in the detox ward uh, of a hospital and Michael, my partner, had found me. I was glad I was alive, I think. And then over the next week, I just shuffled around those halls and paper slippers in a fog. And I thought, okay, I'm glad it didn't take, but I still felt done. My fantasy of what my life would be next was I was hoping that maybe they would put me away in a nice sanitarium, you know, like one of those sanitariums in old movies. And, and I would just live out the rest of my days there. I was 38 years old, by the way. And, you know, occasionally a handsome nurse in crisp white linens would come into my room and gently seat me in a wheelchair and wheel me down a gently sloping verdant lawn where I would greet the occasional visitors. And that would be it. Well, that's not what happened. After that week in detox, I went away to rehab for 60 days and slowly I started to get sober. And it took me about two years of starts and stops before I finally got the alcohol and the drugs out of my system. And once the alcohol was out of my system, the depression and the suicidal ideation was out of my system. And I started to rebuild a new life for myself. I felt like, I don't know, there was something gnawing at me. I felt like a, a new house that was built on an old foundation still riddled with termites. The suicide attempt that I told you about wasn't my first. I had tried it one other time, 11 years prior, when I was 27 years old. I don't remember much about that attempt because every time I, uh, the memory of it would come up, I would just obliterate it. Like, you know, those annoying Facebook reminders. But I can tell you this, I was a book publicist and I had organized a uh, very glamorous, chic book party and the uh, star wattage was blinding. And rather than feeling proud of what, you know, I had accomplished in, in, in organizing that party and, and pulling it off and, and being happy that I was around uh, all those people, I felt like a nothing. I felt like the hired help. And, and I felt like because I wasn't pursuing my artistic ambitions, I would never be anywhere near as accomplished as those people there. And I got drunk at the party and I went home and I drank more. And then I remembered I had some pain painkillers left over from a sprained ankle, which I had gotten because of a drunken fall. And I took them and I went to bed and I woke up the next morning and I was stunned that I had done that, but I was relieved that nobody knew I wasn't caught. And I went to work and I didn't tell a living soul. I didn't tell my partner, Michael, and I didn't tell anyone over the ensuing years. And maybe if I told someone, I might have gotten help with my drinking sooner and maybe have not tried it that second time when I came closer. So why tell that story now? Now that I have uh, several years sober, I have a whole new life, writing, I have my business, I'm performing. I'll tell you why. I own that story, so it doesn't own me. And every time I tell that story, 
It's a promise to myself that I won't make the third time the charm. Thank you, Jamie. So you said in your story, you've not drank again. No, like I said, I, after that attempt, it got me into rehab and then I started yeah. getting, so it was two years later is when I've had my last drink. So 2008 yeah. was my last drink. Simple-minded question, perhaps. Has that been hard? It's not now, but it, yes, it was. Yeah. And I, it took me two years from that time. I mean, actually I had tried to get sober a few years before that. Uh, so yes, the journey to getting sober was hard. Is it hard now? No but I, I stay sober, which, you know, and staying sober, by the way, is my suicide prevention plan because I know if I drink or drug, it will take me to that place again, because I went to that. I I almost went to that place when one of the relapses after rehab, like within Mm. one evening, I was, I had gotten drunk and was thinking about killing myself, but I, I do it through 12 step, you know, through meetings and through, um, through therapy. And Jamie's got a couple of questions uh, in the chat that he wants to respond to. Have you ever felt like you've reached a point that you do feel like you can't do that to yourself, not just living for them, but also for your own sake? Or does that line still hold true for you? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. These days, I don't want to do that to myself as well as not doing it to them, for sure. This also kind of ties in with being sober. For me and for a lot of people I know, you can't get sober or stay sober until you want it for yourself. You can, maybe you can stay sober for somebody else or for a job or for, for your health or for your looks. But if you're not doing it ultimately for yourself and wanting it for yourself, it's, you rarely are going to do that. But yes, I, I'm, I'm definitely uh, staying alive for myself. Uh, I am at that point where I, it would be first, I couldn't do it to myself. And second, because of what it would do to my family and friends. Uh, did you feel guilty when you woke up in the hospital to your partner? Was he angry with you? What was the first convo with him like? First of all, I just felt, I felt awful because I felt, I mean, I was sick from the, from the alcohol. So I felt physically awful and I felt ashamed and I didn't want anyone to know. I mean, like I knew my partner of course knew, but I didn't want my mother to know. And that's a whole other story, which I won't get into here. Yes, I did feel guilty. And was he angry with me? He, no, he's very loving and kind. And he just, you know, was afraid um, and was worried about me. And then we, and he said, the other question is, what was the first convo with him, with Michael? Like, we really didn't talk about that until I was in rehab and he came for a visit. And I took him to one of my meetings with me and he shared about it there, about him finding me and knowing and feeling that there's something, something wasn't right that day. And And then we, he and I had a, combo with my counselor, rehab counselor. And, and we talked about that. And I certainly felt guilty then, but he, he was just, you know, talked about how terrified he was uh, Mm. and upset, but there wasn't anger there. So Uh, thanks again, Jamie. I really appreciate it. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. Special thanks to Erica and Jamie. Thanks very much for crafting those stories and telling them with us for this first event, Suicide Noted Personal Stories by Badass Survivors. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. 
hello at suicidenoted.com on Facebook or Twitter at Suicide Noted. And whether you are a suicide attempt survivor or not, if you'd like to join us as either a storyteller or someone in our audience listening to stories, check out our event, the Mental Health Happyish Hour. It's a virtual open mic. Sunday, November 5th. It starts at 8 p.m. Eastern. There is a link in the show notes. You'll also find a link to the Suicide Noted podcast and conversations I have had with now 132 suicide attempt survivors. And that is all for episode number 97. Boom.